You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. All right, so last week, church, Jesus ended by saying, let the little children come to me. The disciples had said, hey, get the kids away. They're dirty, they're diseased. People don't care about these kids. And Jesus said the opposite. He said, these kids belong to me and to the kingdom of God belongs to them. Eternal life belongs to little children like these. And he meant it for the kids, but he also meant it for the adults that the only way to come to the kingdom, the only way to receive eternal life is to come like a little needy child to God. And that sets the context for this passage. Because right after he says that, a rich young ruler comes up and he says this, verse 18. And the ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, he just said this about kids. And a ruler there means ruler of the synagogue. So this is a rich young pastor, a rich young community leader, a rich young person who people know. He's a big deal. And he goes, I know the kids just kind of come to you. I know maybe even these others just, just come. But like, what about me? An important person, a rich person, a learned person, a person with status. What, what do I need to do, Lord? to inherit eternal life because I'm not like them. And Jesus answers because asking Jesus about eternal life, that is the right question, even if the man's emphasis is off. Look what the Lord says in verse 19. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. Jesus is a master. In in one tiny question, he says, why do you call me good? And the question kind of cuts two ways here. It cuts one way saying, since no one is good but God alone, he's asking the rich young ruler, are you saying I'm God? Because if I'm God, if Jesus is God, then what he says next isn't good advice, it's a command to be obeyed. So what exactly are you saying? Are you calling me God? Because he'd be right to call him God. And second, when the Lord says no one is good, it casts a shadow on the question of the rich young ruler. That perhaps eternal life has more to do with God's goodness and a little less to do with what we do. Jesus then lists off five of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. If you're unfamiliar with the Ten Commandments, it's kind of God's keystone rules for living in relationship with him. He lays them down from Mount Sinai once he delivers Israel out of Egypt, something called the Exodus. And God says, here's the 10 rules to live in relationship with me. And Jesus lays down these five of the 10 rules. And I want you to look at these rules and see what they might have in common. Why is the Lord pick five of them? Why not drop all 10? Look what these rules are. This is actually commandment seven. He says, first, do not commit adultery. Adultery is sex outside of a loving marriage between a man and a woman. Six, do not murder. Eight, do not steal. Nine, do not bear false witness, which is a fancy way to say don't lie. 
and then, or nine, and then five, honor your mother and father. Do you notice something about them? Why those five? They're all what we could call the horizontal commandments of the Ten Commandments. They're sins that you do against another person. Think about it. You murder another person, you steal from another person, you lie to another person. When you commit adultery, you're wronging someone, maybe the person, maybe the person you're married to. Honor your father and mother, they're, they're real people. They're all the horizontal commands, our neighbor, Jesus points out. And the man says, uh, I've kept all these from my youth. I'm on it. I'm on it. But what about the commands Jesus leaves out? What about the other five? What are those commands? Well, take a look with me. We could call them the vertical commands. These are the ones the Lord doesn't mention, but are in the Ten Commandments. It's the first four commandments and then the tenth. The first commandment is God first. Have no other gods before me. No other gods have nothing else. No idols, no gods, no other religions. Love, worship, serve nothing before God, just God. Second is no idols. Don't bow down to any created thing. Don't serve anything, whether it's a a literal wooden carven idol or a stone idol or a metal idol or something more uh, like an idea, like status, popularity, wealth, uh, success. Number three is don't misuse my name, which is, means don't misuse God's name, but it's also a way to say don't take God lightly. Don't throw his name around. Don't disrespect God by treating him as something other than God. And the fourth one, you might say, is that really vertical? It's keep the Sabbath. And the Sabbath said, because God worked for six days and rested on the seventh day in creation, so you as God's people should work for six and rest on the seventh, trusting that your work in six days will actually provide for seven days. So very much is a vertical thing. Will you trust God to rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath? And the last command that's not mentioned is do not covet your neighbor's stuff not their spouse, not their house, not anything they own. And once again, it almost sounds like a horizontal command, but it really isn't. It actually has nothing to do with your neighbor. It has everything to do with your contentment with God. Because your neighbor might might not even know you're covetous of them. They're probably unaware unless you start lying, stealing, and murdering, or committing adultery. They'll become aware But coveting is actually between you and God. It's contentment with what he's provided and refusal to compare with what has been given to another. So Jesus leaves these out. And he leaves these out because the ruler is very confident in his reputation in the community. He has treated, it seems, uh, relatively well, or he probably wouldn't be in charge. But Jesus is more than a good teacher. A favorite allusion in Luke is he's a doctor. He's a physician. He's here to heal the sick. And when the doctor tells you what's wrong, I know we got some doctors in the house. When the doctor tells you what's wrong, it's called a diagnosis. That's when he or she points out, here's the disease. Here's the actual problem. Here's what's going on. And Jesus is the best of friends to look at this ruler and point out what will actually keep this man from inheriting eternal life. He's going to tell them what's between you 
in knowing God? What's between you and going to heaven? He points out that the ruler loves money more than God, thus breaking all the vertical commandments. Yeah, he kept five of them pretty well. But he broke all the ones between him and God through loving something other than God first. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to the ruler, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. Just give away all your stuff. Give away all your cell phones. Give away all your things. You will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For the ruler was extremely rich. To love money more than God is to have a God before God. To love money more than God is literally to have an idol. You can worship and obsess over money. You can adore money. To love money more than God is to take the eternal God very lightly and take the fleetingness of money very seriously. To love money more than God is to trust your work and what your work makes money more than to trust God to rest, to put down your work, or trust God with your money to give it away or use it for God's kingdom. To love money more than God is to covet even more money because it's not enough and it never will be. And you know you have a problem because you can't let it go. Jesus can read hearts and minds. He proves it throughout the gospel. So Jesus' diagnosis is correct and we see it's correct because the man can't do it. He simply can't do it. He point blank meets Jesus. Jesus says, do this to live And the man can't do it. He chooses his stuff over the words of his Savior. And he doesn't even have to wait. It says he's extremely sad immediately. He sticks with the stuff and is already feeling the condemnation of his life. But he can't let it go. That Jesus has put his finger on the thing. And it's same in our life. Sometimes when the idol, the thing we really serve other than God gets brought up or it gets exposed in some way, it can be really, really hard. It can feel like death almost because it's challenging your deepest core beliefs, things that are rivals to God in your heart. And it's an amazing moment because you could turn and live. Jesus is giving an invitation. He says, follow me. He's not saying you're disqualified. He's saying entrance into the kingdom. Enroll, my friend. The school of eternal living starts now for you. But he holds on to his stuff. It's the same question we have when our idols are exposed. Money is a terrific tool. It is. It gives you options. If you don't have any money, you don't have any options. But if you have some money, you have options, options to do different things. And money is not the root of all evil. That's commonly said here in American culture. It's incorrect. Scripture tells us that when we love money over God, that's the root of all kinds of evil. Look at 1 Timothy 6 to help get this clear for us. Our goal as Christians is not to be money haters. That's not a healthy view of money or, or just to hate the rich or something like that or despise the poor. Money is neutral. 
For the love of money, not money, the love of money, something that's wrong with our heart, is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You can see the rich young rulers, like literally in the verse, he's going to wander away from God. And he's going to pierce himself with an empty life. He came looking for something else. He was rich, he was young, he was in charge. None of that was enough. He's asking, how do I get the eternal life? And even when told, he walks away. He's pierced. Money is a terrific tool, but boy, it's a terrible God. And here's how you know if money is deep down running your life. Here's some things to consider. If money is the number one factor in all your decision-making, whether you're good with money or bad, if money decides what you do in your life, then money is your functional God. Is it a part of decision-making? Sure, just like the calendar, just like your values. But ultimately, if everything you do or don't do just boils down to like, oh, I have money for it or I don't, money's kind of running your life. If money is the number one cause of your happiness or sadness, money's your God. If your app on your phone for your stocks or your retirement goes down and it causes an instant level of anxiety and panic and sadness, or if you get an alert that the stocks are going up and you're overjoyed, that's not a good sign because the stock market does this and it becomes your God. If you choose jobs, and sometimes we have no other option, we just need the job. But at some point, you probably will get a choice between jobs, the sort of jobs you want to work, the sort of hours you want to work, the sort of things. If money is the only thing that guides your career, which, I mean, it's 40 hours of your waking life. You sleep for more than 40 hours. So if God doesn't care about your work, God doesn't care about you. So if money's the only thing that happens at work, and you're only calculus in making that decision, well, money's your functional God. It's ruling a huge part of your life. You don't have to love work. But money shouldn't be the only factor for what we do as a living. If you find yourself trying to use others or even use God for money, then very clearly you love money more than God or other people. But the real test is this. It's the same test that's in the text. It's a test that's kind of given to the man, but we'd be remiss not to think of ourselves. That if you were the rich young ruler, if you were standing in his shoes, would you let all your money go and follow Jesus? If Jesus were to come in the flesh and stand here and tell us, follow me, and implicit in that, you're going to physically be with Jesus and he's going to provide for you in, in, in some way. Danger lies ahead. Unknown financial future lies ahead. But if Jesus were to physically stand here and give us an invitation to say, follow me, but to follow me, you must sell all your goods, all your cars, all your retirement accounts, and you'd be flipped over to charity and your home, would you be able to start walking after him or walking away? Could you? Would you give Jesus, the Lord of the universe, a yes? Can you give him a yes now?
as you live out a life where there are bills to pay and things to do, and he isn't physically with us. Usually our love of money isn't about money. That's the tricky part. We're like, oh, if I just, you know, this money. It's actually not about the money. It's about what the money means to you. And that's a little different for everybody. It's different in how you're wired. It's different in how your story is. It's different in your circumstances. But money means different things to people. And if you want to grow deeply here, like a good detective show, you got to kind of get your heart into the interrogation room. You know, you got to kind of sit yourself down and look in the mirror a little bit to say, what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my soul when it comes to money? And here at Citizens, we talk about the soul, our heart, this spiritual center of us, like a, like a garden. I think it's the best analogy I've ever heard. And when you believe upon Christ, the Lord comes in and just starts to renovate the garden. He just dumps dark, rich soil into it. He brings fertilizer. He starts planting new seeds of godly desires to want to worship God, to want to serve God, to want to love others, all sorts of good things. The Lord is just giving us gift after gift of just planting in our heart. But here's the big problem, because that sounds great. But our old life, the weeds are still in the garden. And it's in repentance that we get to start pulling out the stuff that maybe God didn't plant in there, that we did. But a lot of times we treat money like a weed and we get serious and we kind of take the machete or maybe you're not so violent in your garden and you take a shovel and kind of kill the weed, put a little spray on it. And the, and the fruit of this weed is stuff like coveting, stuff like lying at work. It's stuff like just failing to be generous. It's, it's those things. But the meaning of money is that root. Does money mean security? Does it mean status? Does it mean, look, mom, I made it? Does it mean I'm doing better than my classmates? Does it just mean comfort? Is it a means to beauty? Is it something that you like to compare yourself, even if it's just in the quiet of your heart? What does money mean a little deeper down? Because when you find that root, most of those things that it means you could actually find in Jesus. What if your safety and security was found in Jesus? What if your comfort was found in his care? What if instead of comparison, the Lord filled you with love for the classmate who's doing better than you or the family member who's doing better than you? And in that hole where the root comes out, the Lord can plant something beautiful. That's the hope for real change and that's the treatment that Jesus is offering this man. It's not enough, just follow me and keep the money. The money has you, man. You don't have money, the money has you. So you gotta let it go if you're ever gonna fill that void with me. He's a good doctor, giving a real treatment and not false hope to this man and not false hope to us. Growth starts where we can actually say why money or whatever it is is a problem and see Jesus as the gospel solution to that problem. Jesus puts this idea so powerfully and simply in Luke 13. It's just a few chapters, or Luke 16, verse 13. It's a few chapters earlier. Look at this. It says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God in money. And look at our merciful Jesus. He doesn't laugh at the guy. He's not mean to him. He's truthful with him. The guy asks him a question, he's getting answers. But as this very sad ruler, Jesus looks right at him and gives him a series of what a doctor would call a prognosis. A diagnosis is when a doctor tells you the problem. A prognosis is when the doctor tells you what will happen with this disease. If you take the treatment, if you don't take the treatment. That's what verse 24 says. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. For those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter, one of his disciples, said, Lord, see, we've left our homes. We followed you. Kind of a what about us, Jesus? impossible for me? Verse 29, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The ruler is still standing there. He hasn't left. And Jesus gives the prognosis, if you refuse the treatment, it will be like a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle to inherit eternal life. It will be impossible. You won't take Jesus. You will take the money and run. Peter asks, well, what about us, your followers? And Jesus tells him, take the the focus off you just like he said, the, like the rich man, take the focus off you, that whatever you lose in this life, you, you actually will gain in this life and in the life to come, that God is in no one's debt. Whatever you lose in following Jesus, you will come out ahead in this life and in the life to come. If you take the treatment, you will have treasure in heaven, eternal life. And when Jesus becomes your treasure, The things of this world just grow strangely dim, as the hymn tells us. Treasuring Jesus alone is how you inherit eternal life. Treasuring Jesus alone is how you inherit eternal life. In other words, Luke 12 says this, For wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Who has your heart, church? What troubles you when it comes to money? Do you sleep easy with it? If you're wondering, look over the bank account, you know, the line items from the month of what debits and credits. Look at the credit cards. For where your treasure goes, your heart will naturally flow. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection a third time. And he does this on purpose because he wants to detail how is it possible with God for salvation, for sinful men, for people who love things other than him. Look at verse 33. It says, after flogging him, that is beating him with whips, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus is talking about himself, but he's describing a cross where he'll be executed and 
then eventually rise from the dead in resurrection. He'll come back to life three days later. And that's the power of the gospel, that Jesus dies for our sins. He dies for our love of money, our love of God over anything else. He dies for our vertical sins. He dies for our horizontal sins. But see the connection here, that your horizontal sins all come from the vertical sins. No one sins horizontally without first sinning vertically. That deep down, your greatest debt is never to another human. It is always to God. Think about this. If we love money over God, we will lie, steal, maybe even murder to get money or keep it. Watch any British detective show. If we love ourselves over God, then we'll pursue things like pleasure, sexual morality over sexual purity. There will always be a reason to not obey if you love yourself more than God. It's vertical and then horizontal. And you see how Jesus' treatment makes sense. Until we love God first, we're going to be trapped by the same idols and sins always. Even if we clean the behavior up for a little bit, deeper down, the roots got to come out or the weeds grow back. Year after year, I can cut the weed a million times. It just grows back stronger. The roots go deeper and it pops up stronger that spring. So Jesus told the ruler to give it all away and then to follow him. Salvation is impossible on your own, but possible by Jesus' cross and resurrection. The cross is not just an, it's not an example. It's not just an example of like, hey, we should, we should live sacrificially. The cross isn't to make us feel guilty. Like, man, Jesus did all that. I better shape up. Instead, the cross is payment to make salvation possible for sinners like you and I. There is no one who can do enough to be saved. When the man asks, what shall I do? The cross is an affront. It challenges us. It, it, it says that there isn't something you're going to do because Jesus has done it. It is about what Jesus has done on the cross that you're saved, not about what you do. God's goodness is the reason we can be saved. It's not about our worthiness. It's not about doing a special commandment or ritual or having a title like ruler or pastor. God wants us. And if we surrender to God like children, we are welcomed home. This passage ends with a poor, blind, begging man who's the direct opposite of a rich, young ruler. They're put here on purpose, on either side of the cross, really. And people probably parted like the Red Sea to let this ruler come to the front and get his question heard by Jesus. We see the direct opposite. This begging man is yelling and being held back and pushed away. He's embarrassing us. Get away, beggar guy. Pushing him back. Yet the blind man keeps crying out. Because of the gospel, he's so bold. His hope of the gospel. He barely knows the gospel, but he's hoping in it. Verse 39. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Jesus isn't busy. Never has been. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, 
Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. People approach Jesus in all sorts of ways through Luke. You know who goes home happy and healed? Everyone who comes desperate and with faith if they can muster it. The desperate for Jesus find deliverance. We don't use the word deliverance all the time, but it means actual help in your troubles. If you genuinely ask Jesus for mercy, Jesus always graciously gives. Jesus is merciful to us in this life and the fullness of his mercy will come at the Lord's return. Jesus will always be more merciful than you could ask or imagine. You can't overrate his mercy. Think about that. Whatever your picture is of Jesus, he's more merciful than that. He's more willing to listen to you than that. He's less busy than whatever we think because he has all the time in the world and all the capacity to care for you. This man was physically blind and he left healed, seeing Jesus as the first image of his whole life. The ultimate treasure, what everyone is looking for with their eyes wide open, he's been blind and the first thing he sees is the thing that everyone in human history has been looking for. The ultimate treasure. In fact, he's more than physically healed because Jesus says he exercised faith and now he's a follower of Jesus, glorifying God. The blind man inherits eternal life by crying out to Jesus in his need, which brings us to think about perhaps we should call this passage Jesus and the two blind men. The rich man, even though he loves money, he doesn't see the real treasure. That Jesus is the treasure he's looking for. That all of his money is just a, a shadow of the value and wealth that is Jesus. The rich man, he can physically see, but his soul is sick with love of money over God. He rejects the doctor Jesus. He rejects his treatment, and he leaves sad and spiritually blind. He's the one left wandering through life and lost. It's not the man who was begging. It's the rich, young pastor, ruler type. The physically blind man leaves healed, but the spiritually blind man remains lost. Sin makes us truly blind. It's a long warning of the Bible from end to end. And I just want to take a second to look at God's word here and just let it soak in this connection between sin and blindness and the hope that God gives. Deuteronomy 28 says this, But if you will not obey the voice of our Lord your God, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday, like grope around trying to find things to hold on to in the dark, as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. A little forward, Zephaniah says this, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Pretty vivid. 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, 
covered, covered like a sheet here. It's on the other side, but I can't see through it. I don't know what's behind that sheet. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the mind of unbelievers. So we blind ourselves through sin, but also Satan is happy to lay as many traps as he can. He will make a man or woman as rich as need be to blind them with money. Has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the very thing the blind man sees. Sin makes us blind. Idolatry keeps us blind. The devil is no help at all. He is delighted to blind you. But church, I'm going to need your response a little bit here. Do we have to live as blind men and women any longer? No. Jesus heals the blind, amen? Jesus can heal whatever the idol is, whether it's money or anything else, amen? You don't have the power to break free from your sins, but who does have the power to free you from whatever it is from the roots down? Maybe the roots up. (laughs) Jesus gives mercy. Jesus will answer that prayer. Cry out to God, and God has more mercy than we can even imagine. The Lord will hold you like last week. The Lord will heal you like this week. Let Jesus be your treasure, and the eyes of your heart will be opened. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also.